This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get Hefty Ultra Strong with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. So you think you can sit through another uh, episode of the Bible Geek? Well, I sure hope so. Hope I can. Uh, Let's see if my headache will uh, impede my usual uh, fire hose spray of uh, knowledge or whatever it is. But let's uh, get on to some questions here. And uh, today is going to be devoted especially to questions from one new listener, and uh, there's quite a bunch of them, but uh, let's see, uh, they're, uh, they're all uh, pretty interesting stuff, so no, no question about that. Uh, it's all from, uh, good gosh, I'm trying to scroll down here, how many pages is this thing? Uh, Ah, good God. I prefer shorter messages, but they're uh, sometimes just can't contain yourself. It's John Countryman. And uh, let's see what... uh, He says, I became aware of your works about a year ago, and I'm quite elated to find there are others who think along the same lines that I do. (laughs) I know the feeling. I was raised a Catholic, went to Catholic school from first through tenth grade, but don't recall when I ever believed in a god. I seem to remember thinking at an early age, this is a bunch of baloney. You ever notice how baloney meaning nonsense is... B-A-L-O-N-E-Y, but baloney that you eat is B-A-L-O-G-N-A. Interesting. Okay, uh, yeah, sorry about that. Uh, but I went along to get along. In short, I got my piled higher and deeper, Ph.D., in cultural anthropology 13 years ago with a concentration on religious studies, I've always been curious as to why people believed what they did and uh, um, and still working on understanding that from the outside. But I'm a Christian atheist like yourself and attend a conservative Lutheran church where I am the adult Sunday school teacher. It's a seminar-style class, and I don't teach them what to believe, I ask pointed questions and act the devil's advocate to my students. They don't know or even suspect I'm an atheist, but I imagine a lot of preachers and priests are atheists as well. At any rate, I have a lot of questions for the Bible geek to wit. When Jesus was tempted by Satan on the mountaintop, why didn't he simply say, All creation is mine already. I made it so it's not yours to give me. 
To me, this passage indicates a Manichaean or Gnostic concept that Satan is the ruler of the mundane and Jesus and his father uh, do not possess it, at least not yet. For some reason, it was not weeded out by the orthodoxy. I asked my pastor this question, and she just said that Satan was appealing to the human side of Jesus. If I were a believer, I think that answer would be most unsatisfying. Yeah, uh, there is a bit of a problem there in that it's uh, kind of Nestorianism, uh, that this... Uh, this answer implies there's a lot less unity between uh, the Jesus and the Christ, the human and the divine. Uh, and uh, it's uh, it, it does seem to me to make nonsense of the story and of any kind of traditional Christology that a Lutheran pastor is supposed to believe in. Seems to me that, uh, that it it does smack of the at least implicit dualism of apocalyptic Judaism, which owes quite a bit to Zoroastrianism, and uh, that uh, it's uh, it does presuppose also like Buddhism does, right, that, that there is a tempter, Mara, who does own the world. He's sort of the custodian of the material world, and uh, the... Um, and so he doesn't want this new prophet or savior or whatever uh, to despoil him of his uh, customers, uh, and uh, and so um, he has the uh, the world in his hand and can hand it out a, in a kind of spoil system, uh, and uh, that's I mean it's like in First John the whole world lieth in the grasp of the evil one or Gospel of John. Um, the uh, archon of this world is about to be cast down and uh, so forth. Uh, so, yeah, it, it does imply that uh, though God may be in de jure control, uh, Satan or the demiurge is in de facto control. And uh, this this uh, view is generally held only by people that believe this is about to end, that, uh, well, it looks like God can't really be uh, in hands-on charge of this world or this stuff we see wouldn't be happening. Uh, but don't worry, uh, however he let that happen, it's soon going to be over, and then really it's academic as to why. Um and, of course, that becomes more and more problematical the more time goes on, and there isn't any kingdom of God, Armageddon, defeat of the bad guys. Uh, now, you you could, uh, I guess, have a compromise view like the ever-fascinating Yazidi sect does, saying that uh, God has put the the proud angel, the peacock angel, Melictus, in charge of the world, and so he's the one we have to deal with. Uh, the, he's not the ultimate God, even though these people are often called devil worshippers. They have to uh, deal with the, uh, well, it's like uh, the government of any country, right? If they're in charge, you got to deal with them, but that doesn't mean they're, uh, they're perfect or even righteous. And uh, so they say, let's be realistic about this. Uh, and uh, so that's the, the uh, only example I know of where it's actually built into the theology 
though there are similar ideas in African religions, especially from what I read, that uh, God got so ticked off of the world that he uh, was alienated by it and withdrew, and so humans have to deal with a bureaucracy of subordinate gods and inferior spirits, uh, and uh, so... Uh, and, and but that's as good an answer as any that uh, God got so disgusted he left us to our own devices. That might explain how uh, Satan took over. Like in James Blish's fascinating novels, Black Easter and the and uh, what is it, uh, the Day After Judgment, I think it is, and um, uh, where God is killed by a magician and uh, and Satan stays steps up to take over uh, just because somebody's got to, and he does the best job of being God that he can. Very fascinating stuff. You ought to read it. Yeah, I think it's Black Easter and the Day After Judgment. Um, and and I think the uh, this, in terms of Christology, again, I don't think this story presupposes that uh, Jesus is is metaphysically divine, even though Satan says, if you're the son of God, because that could mean simply the messianic king, who knows? Uh, it's part of what um, Martin DeBalius called the law of biographical analogy. Again and again and again, there are these stories whereby Gautama or Zoroaster or Jesus or Abraham uh, gets tempted to veer off the path and take the easy way, uh, but he's not going to do it. And uh, of course, you could say that it does presuppose his divinity since he's not seriously tempted to take any of Satan's suggestions uh, seriously. And uh, you could say, well, Satan doesn't quite realize who he's dealing with and thinks that these uh, these blandishments might influence uh, Jesus. But then I, I don't think the story means necessarily in this case to say that that Satan is trying to get Jesus to veer off the track. He's just seeing if he will. It's like a Job situation, because the same Greek word can mean either tempting or testing. And um, so, uh, it, but but it doesn't seem to me to imply that uh, Satan should have known he's just wasting his time here. He's just trying this exalted human who uh, has just been given a divine commission and seeing if he's uh, if he's worthy of it, if he's living up to it. And of course, the point is to say, of course he is. Jesus was stolid in his loyalty to God and his mission. That's really the only point. It, I don't think the storyteller intended to link this up to Christological ideas that uh, may never even have arisen yet. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what do you know of the accusation that Count Tischendorf may be forged part of the Codex Sinaiticus? You know, he's supposed to have discovered it in uh, in the monastery of Saint Catherine, but suppose he just took the occasion to forge it. Well, I'm. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me go on with that. I saw a YouTube video 
There should be an exclusively religious uh, YouTube called ThouTube. Anyway, I saw a YouTube video presenting different pages of the Codex. Some looked fairly new and some much older. The way it was uh, presented was in the manner of so many conspiracy theories so easily passed over, but the question lingers in my mind. I've heard something like that. I, 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 it's not impossible, I guess. Uh, maybe textual critics could show that it is. Uh, manuscript specialists. Uh, but I'm not sure why he would have done it. it. It's not the kind of thing where you're trying to smuggle in some new scripture as if it were old and authoritative, right? I mean, it's the New Testament. Uh, would he have been, I mean, if you're going to do such a thing, why? I mean, he's killing a mouse with an elephant gun, right? If it was just that there were a few passages in the Textus Receptus that he happened not to like and figured, well, I bet I can undermine people's faith in those by coming up with a so-called more old, more ancient text that doesn't have these particular passages. <laughs> You'd think it would be more dramatic than that, right? What is that? Plus, what's the point of of adding fake cor scribal corrections on it? You know, there are little uh, interlineations and crossouts and stuff. Uh, that's uh, I don't know if that would occur to anybody to do. I, I guess it could be a device to cover your tracks, but. Again, what what is the point? Why uh, to to fabricate this whole thing and why? I mean, there's not that much difference between that and and the Textus Receptus. Was he that urgent to get rid of the snake handling at the end of Mark? I I just don't see why anybody would bother doing it. Okay, uh, let's see here. Uh, I understand the Samaritan Bible contain, it consists solely of the Pentateuch. They do have a book of Joshua, but it's not the one we uh, have. Uh, did they have a different version of Deuteronomy, which excised the Levitical and Zadokian ecclesiology of the Deuteronomists? I don't think so. I mean, there, there are some manuscript differences. I think there's some ambiguity about uh, the place that Yahweh our God shall choose uh, being Mount Gerizim instead of uh, Mount Zion. But uh, I don't believe there's they've changed the Deuteronomic theology or anything. Um, are you familiar with the TV show Stargate? Uh, no, I'm not. I've... Uh, my wife and I watched the beginning of one episode. It looks so uh, so boring. I've never uh, been able to give it a fair chance. Okay, uh, the melding of the god Ra with humans seemed to be a way that some Christians understand the melding of the divine Jesus with the human Jesus. What do you think? I uh, I don't know how they. Um, construed that. I don't really know what they say. I, I have occasionally done a rambling rant about how uh, the different Christological models are reflected by this or that superhero. Um, is Like with Superman, uh, is he really Clark Kent in any sense at all, or is that simply a masquerade with uh, the real guy being Kal-El? 
well, or or that would be a kind of docetism, or is it really a, a human being who has taken on a role like uh, Peter Parker? Uh, it's pretty clear that he, Spider-Man is always Peter Parker under that mask. It matters what Peter is doing and what's happening to him, and uh, well, so forth and so on. Uh, uh, there are demigods like the Submariner and Aquaman, who are essentially the same character. Each of them is half Atlantean and genetically half human, and so on and so on. But this I just don't know about. Um, see, uh, as a speaker and reader of Hebrew, not exactly fluent, but enough to get along, uh, I would argue that your pronunciation of Yahweh is incorrect. The consonant He is a soft H, not a German, uh, you know, CH, like, uh, Sprachen, see, Deutsch. Um, uh, let's see, and it, there is such Hebrew letter, hate. Uh, and it is not pronounced with two consonants, but four, uh, as per tetragrammaton, right? Yod, he, uh, or ho, uh, vahe, uh, so, uh, yahovaha. The last two consonants are either elided with the soft, uh, ha, so they become one in regular speech, hence Yahovah. This spelling exists not only in later Hebrew texts, but in the Dead Sea Scrolls as well. Of course, we have no way of knowing for sure how the first hey was pronounced prior to the invention of Nikud, vowel indicators, in the 7th century. But we can assume that the pronunciation of such a central word would not have changed prior to that era. Um... Yeah, I, I don't know Hebrew at all. I'm just uh, going by uh, things I have heard professional scholars say, and uh, maybe they're wrong, but I, uh, and, uh, though, I mean, what you say sounds convincing. You certainly know the Hebrew, and I don't, so it could well be uh, full of belagna there. Uh, reading various theological tracts from the Bible, church fathers, etc., I come across variations of the following. Spirit, soul, body. Mind, body, spirit. Uh, soul, body, mind. It is confusing as to what the authors conceive soul, spirit, and mind to be. I once asked my Sunday school class what their definition of the soul is, and I got eight different answers, sort of like the old saw. Uh, you have three rabbis asked a question, you get five different answers. Uh, I like that, by the way. Is there any agreement as to what... Uh, humans are composed of and the definitions of those various terms i it, it, it's very common to hear that um the old testament had no notion of an immortal soul uh and that nefesh uh, it just means the animating breath or life force of the body aristotle had a similar idea uh, and uh, this goes with the what is supposed to have been the Old Testament notion, and which remains in groups like the Seventh Day Adventists of 
of conditional immortality that you're made of uh, shifting, changing, decaying matter. You're going to die, uh, and uh, that's it for you until the resurrection when God recreates you. But you don't have some eternal spark that survives uh, cool in its heels in heaven until the resurrection. Yet there certainly uh, are um, and there, and there are passages in the New Testament that do speak of the dead as those who sleep, which certainly seems to imply uh, unconsciousness. Uh, but then there are others that uh, speak at least of martyrs as going, uh, dying and going to be with Christ, etc., in an obviously incorporeal sense. Uh, so there's that debate, but what do the terms actually mean? I don't know that there's any way to tell that except by usage and context. But fundamentalists have always had, I'm almost hesitant to use that word, um, conservatives, uh, because I don't want to make it sound like this is some kind of primitive stupidity. Uh, they've long had a debate between dichotomy and trichotomy. Do we just have body and soul, or do we have body, soul, and spirit? Because you find both formulae in, in the New Testament, even. And as near as I can tell, the point of this is sort of like what I just said about whether there's unconditional immortality based on a, uh, a spirit as distinct from soul and body. And uh, I suspect the dichotomist view is trying to avoid a kind of Gnostic or Hindu notion that you have a, an Atman which does survive the death of the body. Why would that be distasteful to Christian theology? Well, it might imply that that uh, spark is um, part of the divine, which Gnostics thought, the liberated uh spark of the divine will rejoin the divine pleroma, and that kind of sounds like Hindu non-dualism. So I have a hunch, I've never heard it explained this way, but that uh, trichotomy is thought to lend itself to, uh, to some sort of Hindu monism, and so they'd rather just stick with the uh, dichotomistic view, even though that seems to me consistently to imply conditional immortality. Uh, are you familiar with the YouTube biblical theorist Zoroaster, spelled with an X instead of a Z? Uh, he begins with the null hypothesis of how to date the various books of the New Testament and the early church fathers and comes up with a scheme that is much later than the Orthodox version. He places some emphasis excuse me, on Luke's ascription of his composition to the most excellent Theophilus and hypothesizes that as Theophilus, Bishop of Antioch, is the only known person of that name, Luke and Acts must uh, therefore have been written circa 170 to 180 A.D., I haven't heard or read you discussing this. What do you think? Well, actually, in a couple of places, I think in the pre-Nicene New Testament, um, and uh, probably in uh, uh, the Amazing Colossal Apostle, I do mention this, and 
A couple of scholars have said that have pointed this out as a possibility, and I accept that I think that is most likely who we're talking about there, that uh, the author is Polycarp and that he wrote it to his colleague Theophilus and that it is a mid to late second century work. Yeah, so I buy that. Margaret Barker talks about the holy oil as employed by the priests in both the first and second temples, and it is forbidden to the general populace, though the recipe is given in Exodus and Deuteronomy. She has made some, but not the complete recipe, as in her estimation, as a believer, it would not be appropriate because she is not a high priest, though she is an ordained minister. She's Methodist, I believe. It is solely used by the high priest when he is in the Holy of Holies. Uh, Let me pause. Somebody might think this means that Margaret Barker is some sort of superstitious fanatic, but of course she is not. She's an astounding critical scholar, uh, able to throw away the blinders and take a fresh look at the thing. But she has such respect for these ancient traditions, as anybody should, that I think she feels like uh, she's... uh, it would be improper. It would be showing a lack of respect for these old customs. In the same way, like I have this knee-jerk reaction that other people think is kind of ridiculous when um, when Jewish friends say, hey, the bacon at this place is greater. Hey, want to go to a pig picking and uh, get some barbecue? I think, Hold on a second. Uh, you're Jewish, aren't you? And, uh, oh, yeah, but, uh, and I kind of shudder a little bit. Uh, And why? I don't even believe there's a God, right? But I I somehow, I I think of an episode of, of all things, 30-something, and um, way back there, uh, when I was 30-something, I'd love to see a reunion, 60-something, Michael is, he's Jewish, his wife's a Presbyterian, and uh, they have their son, Leo, and they're trying to decide whether to have him circumcised or not, and uh, it's Michael, the Jew, who doesn't want to do it. He's not really a believer anymore, but this, uh, this rabbi says to him, look, circumcision has been the sign of the Abrahamic covenant for millennia. Uh, It's been passed down to you. You were circumcised. Who are you to break that chain? Yeah, I I think I kind of I kind of view it as uh, the um, reconstructionist synagogues do that the circumcision and the dietary laws are. Uh, Mordecai Kaplan was his name, uh, said that uh, these are the sancta, the holy things that uh, define membership in the Jewish community. And uh, and, and, uh, rationalist Jews, like the author of the Epistle of Aristeas, 
back in New Testament times, he admitted this. He said, uh, do you suppose it really matters that the Torah forbids us to eat mice? Uh, can this be a right or wrong, no compromise issue? <laughs> Obviously not. He says, well, then why is it in the Torah? Well, to, to build up the walls so the Jewish community uh, does not perish by assimilation. Well, of course, that's exactly right, in my opinion. Uh, and uh, they weren't ashamed of that. They admitted uh, that some of it was arbitrary, but not in its purpose. So uh, I, I kind of think the, the same way with some of these things, and I'm pretty sure Margaret does, though I'm really off the track here. So do you have love and respect for these traditions you study? Well, given that, yeah, she she's going to be careful about that. Um, uh, okay, back to the text. It is solely used by the high priest when he is in the Holy of Holies. I wonder whether it is hallucinogenic applied to the skin in large quantities, hence eliciting visions. My sinuses are uh, acting up, so I'm uh, short of uh, breath here, and uh, so that's why I am pausing to catch my breath. I'm not Bored with what I'm reading, I just want to keep uh, keep breathing. Um, do you know if anyone has tried this? Uh, nope. I mean, maybe they have. I wouldn't know. In my studies of various cultures, the use of hallucinogenics by priests, shamans, uh, religious leaders is virtually universal, and I see no reason why Iron Age Jewish priests would be exempt from this usage. Yeah, I've read books uh, about this, arguing that that's why uh, the Israelites saw the pillar of fire, because the the grain they were eating had a certain kind of uh, rust, uh, quote-unquote, on it, and it could be hallucinogenic and all that. But to me, that's just rationalism. You're trying to say, oh, yeah, this uh, miracle story happened, but it wasn't really a miracle. And I figure, come on, the whole thing's a myth anyway. Uh, I've never found any uh, of the offered evidence for hallucinogens in the Bible or the history of Jews and Christians to be persuasive. It's not improbable. Uh, I don't think it's uh, to be ruled out, but I would approach it the like uh, the, the way um, Rabbi Neusner does to say what we cannot show, we do not know. Uh, the mere possibility does not lend probability to a hypothesis. Are you familiar with Julian Jaynes's theory of the bicameral mind? Was it the book's The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind? Interesting, yeah. Uh, I heard one of your podcasts talking about Jacob setting up stone pillars and consecrating them. According to Jaynes's theory, people in the Bronze Age hallucinated stones speaking to them and thought that the stones were actual gods. Uh, for short, it's much more complicated than that, but I think that suffices for an introduction. This leads me to wonder what is going on in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. Um, uh, let's see. I focus on this. Uh, uh, huh? I'm having a hard time seeing this. Lithon, don't you mean Lithon uh, Zonta and uh, Lithon Zontes, uh, the living stones. 
Uh, and in the Qumran hymns uh, 4Q405 through 14, in the Most Holy Temple, the stones of the living gods are carved in the vestibules through which the king enters. And that's his translation. I'm presently working on a monograph investigating all references to stones, pillars, and altars in the canonical and non-canonical texts. Think of the uh, Ebenezer, right? The stone of help and the uh, these memorial stones and all that. Anyway, um, uh, and formulating a theory of what exactly was going on in the minds of those who worshipped or consecrated them. For example, Deuteronomy 32.4 in the Hebrews says, The works of the rock, Hatsur, are perfect, though in the Septuagint, of course the Greek Old Testament, and later translations it says God is our rock or something similar, or it deletes any reference to rock altogether. Um, I also wonder if there is any connection of this to Peter, Petros, Cephas, perhaps some anthropomorphization of the speaking stones, and uh, and think of the stones cry out, right, in Luke, and speaking of which, pardon the pun, I seem to recall reading a book about early Celts and their megaliths entitled, I think, The Speaking Stones, or something similar, but it's not in my library, I'll have to look that up. Um... Uh, these, think of the, this is unrelated, I guess, but I think Wilbur Smith, an apologist of a former day, writes, uh, I think he had a book called, uh, These Stones Speak or something, uh, about archaeology in the Bible. Anyway, uh, yeah, that's interesting. I think that, uh, Peter as the rock, uh, does imply uh, cosmic imagery, the uh, the rock on which the temple is built, hence on this rock I will build my church, uh, and this rock was uh, sort of the same idea of the, the black stone in the Kaaba in, uh, in Islam, that uh, the, the, the huge stone was like a cork that kept the waters of the Tahom from spewing out and, cause, and flooding the world again. And uh, Abraham was uh, was also uh, identified with the the cosmic stone of, of the temple. And uh, let's see. Uh, and then uh, James and John Boanerges, uh, the so-called sons of thunder, I think really it denotes sons of the thunderer, Castor and Pollux, the sons of Zeus. Uh, that's cosmic imagery, too. I think it refers to Boaz and Jachin, the two pillars uh, in the temple that uh, that symbolize the, the pillars on which the earth is, uh, on which the, the, uh, the firmament is balanced. And... Uh, so there, I think all of that stuff is uh, cosmic and implies that these figures were deemed to be uh, holy or divine characters before they got drawn into the orbit of the, the Christ myth. Uh, let's see. Does Jesus preaching mostly in Samaria 
slash Galilee instead of Judah have any significance? Does it reflect an anti-temple bias? Well, this might be saying the same thing in other words, but I suspect it does uh, stem from Galilean Christianity, uh, about which we know um, less than we'd like to, but I think there are various gospel bits and pieces that imply Galilean Christian origins, like the, what do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? Uh, it can't be David's son, because David wrote Psalm 110, of course he didn't, um, in which uh, David says, uh, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, well, he must be talking about uh, my Lord must be the Messiah, right? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, and so David is referring to God speaking to the Christ uh, in this way. And he says, well, Jesus says, actually, Mark says that um that uh, the Messiah can't be David's son because he would never speak of his son in such terms. That would be really a violation of the filial protocol. I mean, that's a wild inference, uh, uh, but um, uh, who who is trying to buck the widespread view that the Messiah must be Davidic? Well, uh, either Samaritans or Galileans who didn't uh, revere the house of David, right? And um, and so uh, they they had different ideas of who the Messiah would be, the Messiah Ben Joseph or the Taheb or whatever. So I think there's uh, there's some some of that going on there. I have a discussion of this in uh, my book Deconstructing Jesus, and um, uh, that's you might take a look at that. Um, and and I say that kind of amounts to an anti-temple bias, right? You, the same people would have repudiated the the Jerusalem temple because that's the temple of Solomon rather than that of uh, Jeroboam. Uh, well, I got uh, through that quicker than I thought. Thanks, John. All really good questions. I look forward to your uh, your article. Okay, here's one from Brian. Uh, we uh, have got a uh, Brian, sir. Uh, in a Facebook post a few weeks ago, you mentioned you were working on an audiobook of Beyond Born Again. Do you have any information on when that will be released? Uh, alas, no. Um, I think Pitchstone Press is going to make an audiobook of it, but I, and I have finished the recording, but I don't, uh, I'm not caught up on their plans or their schedule. In earlier episodes of The Bible Geek, you made mention of other titles of yours as audiobooks, but I can't seem to find any of these. The only one I have been able to find via Audible has been The Case Against the Case for Christ, which I've listened to three times. It's very dense with information and bears repeated listening to absorb it all. Good, good. Um, I have... Uh uh, I've recorded um, uh, Night of the Living Savior, and uh, I guess you could order that from me, and I'll pass it on to John Felix, who uh, sends out the uh, the audios. I don't believe I've done any other ones yet, but I hope to do some. Uh, the Prometheus 
titles and the signature books titles they they don't want to those publishers don't want to do audio books and uh they hold the uh the rights to it or whatever and uh, i i think um i think it may be possible to yeah i think there's some a couple of ebooks of mine from uh american atheist press uh but no audio books yet i suppose those are possibly recordable maybe i could do that um then uh brian goes on to say um i especially enjoy it when an author reads his own book do you have plans to do audio versions of any of your other books you mentioned once doing a reading of the pre-nicene new testament although this would be an incredible investment of time for you i'd pay well to hear this for that matter i'd pay you to read any of the so-called pauline epistles in their entirety as paul lind yeah. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Um, a short one like Philippians would do. Uh, thanks and keep up the great work. Now, hmm, now you got me thinking about that. That might be fun to do it piecemeal in that fashion. Um, let's see. This is... Oh, uh, another one from uh, from Brian. He says, I've heard it said by preservationists, King James only preservationists at least, uh, that Psalms 12, 6 through 7 is the proof that God has providentially preserved the words of the Bible through the ages. Here are the verses. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver dried in a furnace of earth purified seven times. Thou shalt keep, oh, that's, uh, yeah, okay. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. They claim that here is the evidence that the, oh, I'm sorry, I had to quote. They claim that here is the evidence that the Lord will indeed preserve his words, which they presume to mean the Bible. Bible forever. However, if I read the entire psalm, I get a different meaning. Here's the entire psalm. To the chief musician upon, uh, upon Shemineth, that's a kind of uh, instrument, um, a psalm of help, uh, skipping words, a psalm of David, help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. They speak vanity, every one with his neighbor, with flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things, who have said, with our tongue we, will we prevail, our lips are our own, who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Now, it seems to me that the them in verse 7 refers to godly men and or the poor or needy and not to the words of the Lord. The words of the Lord here seem to be verse 5. 
For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. Verse 6 to me indicates that the Lord will keep his promise to the poor and needy to keep them safe in times of trouble. In fact, if verse 7 were a promise to preserve the words of the Lord, why would he promise to preserve them from this generation? Uh, Wouldn't he instead promise to preserve them for this generation? Here I think this generation refers to verse 8, the wicked men who abound uh, in the day in which this psalm was written. Surely you're right. It makes more sense that the poor and needy would be preserved from this generation, that is, of the wicked. Am I reading this correctly? I don't think this has anything to do with preserving the words of the Bible at all. Yeah, you're you're certainly right, Brian. Uh, This is just... uh, It's so ironic, talking about God's words being preserved accurately, and the argument that it's happened is based on twisting the text. Is there any doctrine of preservation from such abuse of the text? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, and uh, which raises all kinds of questions if the text is ambiguous and susceptible to various meanings. You know, it doesn't really matter whether you have the original wording or not, right? Oh, it's infallible, whatever the heck it's saying. That's yeah, great. Um, um, also, this this is suicidal uh, unless the, like you mentioned, the King James preservationists, the people that say, yeah, it's the uh, the Byzantine text uh, on which the Textus Receptus was based. Uh, that gives us the words of God, not those uh, uh, Alexandrian texts or Caesarean texts and all that. Um, why, uh, you know, it, it's, it's really a twisted, crazy thing, but you can't really defend that in terms of the textual evidence. And to say you're making an outrageous historical claim, especially since we just don't have the autographed manuscripts, right? Uh, we have no way of knowing what the original looked like. It's just by fiat to protect the King James or New King James version, right? Because you want the certain as much certainty you can as you can get about what the Bible says. This is why interpolation theories that um, posit interpolations into the New Testament before any manuscripts survive, like it must have happened pre-Chester Beatty Papyri, etc. This is why such theories are intolerable to many. A couple of critical scholars even uh, said... um, I'm thinking of, jeez, uh, oh, I can't quite, I have a headache, I'm telling you, I can't quite think of the the names, uh, but uh, they they are explicit saying, look, if we admitted that was possible, the whole text would become uncertain and we wouldn't really know what the scripture says anymore. Well, just because you don't like the, uh, the implication doesn't mean it's true. So, um, yeah, and uh, it's it's just baffling. And if you're more sophisticated than these King James um, 
preservationists. Well, you could be less sophisticated. You could argue that the King James is the divinely inspired translation. I've heard people argue that. Uh, just like, and for the same reason that uh, uh, ancient Hellenistic Jews argued that the translation of the Septuagint was fully inspired just as the writing of the original Hebrew was. They're just trying to you know, cover their own... Uh, theological butts. They couldn't read it. They, they were um, trying to uh, legitimate their basing their beliefs on uh, a Greek translation. Oh, don't worry. It's just as inspired as the original. Uh, oh, does that mean God has, like in the Quran, has abrogated earlier things that are translated differently in the Septuagint? Oh, my God. Anyway, the more uh, sophisticated preservationists have really cut down the line of defense by saying, look, all we're saying is that the correct reading of the text survives somewhere amid the thousands of manuscripts. Oh, well, that's a big help. Uh, so there is a needle somewhere in the midst of the haystack. Uh, good luck. Good hunting. Sheesh. Um... Oh, I uh, I guess I'll uh, knock off for today. I'm just uh, in a fog here, as you can probably tell. Uh, but I'll be back soon with another exciting episode of The Bible Geek, and I hope you will see fit to join us at that point. Uh, thanks for being with me today on The Bible Geek. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.